Welcome back, everyone. So if you've been listening recently, we've had some discussions on billing and documentation. And for those of you who are not interested, I have exciting news. I promise you I will not use those two words again or anything associated with them through the remainder of this entire podcast. So get excited. Is that a promise? It is a promise. Pinky promise. It's not going to happen. I'm going to try to make sure I don't mess it up on accident. What happens if it does happen? Dan gets to pens me. I don't know. (laughs) Mustard gun? Mustard gun it is. Like it happened. But what I do want to do is think about how that's brought up some questions on neuromuscular education. Yeah, I think we're all pretty comfortable with knowing how to bill for balance and proprioception, but what does neuro-re-ed actually look like in the clinic if you're trying to retrain a new motion or retrain a muscle firing pattern? So that will be our discussion coming up. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. All right, everyone. So I'm really hope you've heard us say do move groove if you haven't please talk to me about it because we should understand this a little bit by now but when we talk about do move groove when we look at the groove component we talk about getting the patient moving over and over and over through a pattern and grooving it into their natural movement so how do we help facilitate this i think we know that there's a lot of ways that play into that and i think first we should probably discuss a little bit of the fact that body mechanics themselves play a role and we know through research that if you have an inappropriate foot strike, it can diminish your glute firing. And if you're able to improve the foot strike or even just the foot mechanics as we go into initial contact and move through the stance phase, it can actually turn the muscle back on. So sometimes neuromuscular re-education or the ability to get the muscle to fire the way we need to could be as simple as just mobilizing a joint or providing exercises that allow a joint to move in the way that it's designed to move. So I'm talking about that first. So Dan, what does that look like with a patient to you? Well, I think that's a really good question because it's something that I just discussed with one of my students and um, he was looking and working with a patient that just had a balance deficit, but he was billing it all as their X. And um, I think this is a common misunderstanding. And I think that that's why this topic um, connected with what we did previously is, is so valuable because it truly helps to differentiate what we do as movement professionals. Um, and, and I think that when we look at neuromuscular education, working with the patient, it's well, what's the purpose of that exercise, which I know we've talked about previously. Um, but what are we trying to do? Are we trying to facilitate a new movement sequence or pattern or a, appropriate firing of that musculature um, that is not volume-based, but might be volume-based? Um, you know, and I think that there, there's a lot of variety in, in interpretation that can occur across that, that question. Um, so when I'm working with a patient, when I decide that neuromuscular reeducation is the appropriate code, it's really when I'm giving a verbal cue or a tactile cue to move into a new range that we have not yet moved into, except for possibly on the table. Um, doing some sort of mobilization, you know, manual therapy with my hands. Now, there are times that I could justify neuromuscular education if I take that patient to the end range and I do sort of, you know, a, a combination of isotonics or an isometric hold, you know, use some contract relax, uh, a PNF pattern. Um, that could be utilized as neuromuscular re-education. Um, but, but like you said, the purpose is really to facilitate that muscle to fire in a new range or more effectively. I just want to put a disclaimer out there for listeners who are paying attention. Dan did use a word I promised not to use, and I apologize. I did not make him have the same promise as I. So, sorry, guys, <laughs> it won't happen again. I yeah, that's guarantee. my bad. It's okay. Anyway, I want to expand a little bit and ask you a question then. So, you talked about using 
um, you know, reversals, isotonics, and things like that. When you're doing it, what are the specific parameters in which you're making sure you are going through to achieve the benefit you want, or does it differ greatly? Yeah, I think that's a good point. When I'm using that combination of isotonics, um, a PNF principle on the table, I'm really trying to make sure that they get into that new range that I've facilitated or stay in that new range. So if they, if we go back to the example of, of shoulder flexion and the patient walks in with 120 degrees of shoulder flexion and I facilitate them up to 150, when I'm doing that combination of isotonics um, or the slow reversal holds or the contract relaxes or whatever you, you decide to use, uh, I'm going to stay in that 120 and 150 range. Um, and then as they get better at controlling 120 and 150, I'm going to make that range even bigger so that it really tells their brain, hey, you now can move from 50 to 150. Now you can move from 20 to 150. Now you can move from zero to 150. Um, but I'm going to first start in that 120 to 150 range. Yeah, and I think you hit on a really important part there that some people tend to ignore. You have to make sure you're going into the new range that you just achieved. So one, you should be achieving some sort of range. It goes back to our test retest to say, okay, short reflection started at 120, now short reflection's at 135. Let's make sure we play in that 120 to 135 range. And we know the body is extremely specific. It will respond to the challenge in which you provide it. If you challenge it with a new range, it will start to respond in there. It should be quite familiar to any vestibular therapist out there. Look at habituation, adaptation. You need to show the brain how to deal with the challenge. If you're not giving it a challenge, it doesn't know how to deal with that new parameter or that new area or that new region. Right. And I think this directly ties into some neuroplasticity, right? Like Exactly. You know, you don't you don't challenge it in a new range and you're not going to develop that neuroplasticity. We know it, it, it continues to show up in research that neuroplasticity is prevalent and real. And I remember when our professor, Dr. Kincaid, talked about neuroplasticity, I kind of looked at him like what the heck are you talking about? But it continues to show up showing, meaning that it is something that we can do and should do as movement professionals. Um, and, and really, like you said, whether it's habituation, whether it's uh, training in that new range of motion, whether it's facilitating a greater movement sequence, I think those are things we really have to focus on. And I don't know if you have a similar experience to that, but I remember coming out of school, I saw a lot of research and heard a lot of things about how the body wants to be efficient. I mean, it's all about conservation of energy. So I just for some reason assumed that the way we move is the efficient pattern, and once I give you the appropriate range, it will move as efficiently as possible. I don't think that's quite the appropriate allocation of that. I mean, the body is wanting to be efficient, but unfortunately, it tends to substitute efficiency for laziness. It will take the easy path out. It will take the easy route because it typically is energy conserving, as so it's all about survival. Uh, so if you don't actually show it what to do, don't actually get into the new range, it can often fall into poor patterns and remain in those poor patterns easily because they're simple. We can't guarantee that just because you change how the midfoot moves, the glute is going to suddenly start firing. Yes, we've seen research. It should, and it does often, but that doesn't mean it's always going to. It doesn't mean you won't have to do additional re-education and additional techniques, whether it's manual or exercise, to promote the appropriate firing of that and then make it become an ingrained, repetitive known subconscious motion, whatever you want to uh, describe it as, the patients are using it at all times, every time. So I want to ask you a question now. You said, you know, getting to the point where, it, you know, we've grooved it and we've got it into that known subconscious. What are you doing in that situation? How are you cueing the patient to get it to that point and not, and still keeping it as neuromuscular education and not turning it into the therax? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it depends a little bit on what you're trying to achieve with that patient and where you're coming from. So it might be simple variation. 
let's say that when it comes to muscle firing, they're just not even recruiting things proximally at first. When we look at muscle recruitment, it should start proximally and move distally. This obviously can be one something. Core first strategies. Exactly. Thank you guys. Good course. Good plug. Um, we want to think about this being a functional movement. This probably isn't going to be seen as easily, though it's still seen on the table and maybe with your TheraBand, you know, shoulder ex resistor external rotation, things of that nature. But if you have someone out there moving, they have some sort of force that comes against them that they have to stabilize against. You should see initiation of muscle firing proximally at the core, at the trunk, and then moving outward distally. And now if I have a shoulder patient, that does not guarantee that they are doing this appropriately. I might be going to town on weight-bearing, proprioceptive, stability exercises, and they do great. They can hold planks and drive everything every direction I possibly want, but they're still not able to hold a weight without pain. And their shoulder um, rotator cuff is strong, musculature is strong. Issue might be the fact that the trunk isn't doing anything to stabilize, and they're trying to play on an unstable base to start with. So I might be doing some sort of PNF pattern with the trunk, or I might be doing some sort of muscle activation technique, whatever that be, tapping, whatever you prefer, at the trunk to get it to fire. I might even have an exercise that is for the trunk only. It might be my shoulder patient, and the shoulder does nothing. I think this is something that we often think about doing with your knee patients, even the ankle to some degree, hip for sure, but it doesn't mean you can't do it with the upper extremity, with the neck, with the shoulder, with the elbow, with the wrist, with the hand. It, all those things are part of the picture. So it might be just getting techniques to turn the trunk on, which is going to directly relate to the appropriate muscle firing patterns and movements that I want eventually for, in this case, the shoulder. Or B, it might be one of those examples where I'm just saying, all right, I want to get the shoulder to fire itself. Again, it might be as simple as a tapping technique to recruit the specific muscle I want. It might be me manually assisting with the appropriate motion, uh, such as with the scapula and trying to make sure that it's initiating from the appropriate position, not too far out laterally, making sure that it's having upward rotation, that it's initiating at the appropriate time frame, making sure that that after initiation is doing that nice little two to one rhythm that we want to see with the glenohumeral joint and the scapular mobility. But it's often in my mind going to be a hands-on type of technique. But again, you can get very, very easily creative and do plenty of therapeutic exercises but the purpose behind them is to get the muscle to fire correctly, which then means, well, you could do whatever you need to do with it as far as how you are going to do the word that I promise I'm not going to say, so I'm not going to say it. Dan, do you want to fill in for me real quickly? No. Okay, fine. Good work, sir. But again, ultimately, you're doing what the patient needs, and you're trying to make sure that when this patient is with you, you're not just going through and giving a new motion and giving us some simple stability exercises. You're saying, okay, I've given a new motion. They have stability. Now, what do I do to put the two together and make sure they can work and move functionally? And I think Dan actually kind of touched on a very good point here previously when we talked about looking at your exercises and looking at the purpose of each of the exercises. I know this is something that Tim talks to and it's something that the grain student in general is awesome at always looking and assessing what are your exercises, what are you doing, and what is the purpose behind them? So Dan, do you want to take us through real quick just thought of what am I looking at my flow sheet and what do I say, all right, I might need to freshen this up or adjust something. Yeah, I think that this is something that we've learned from our colleague, Andrew Walquist about, you know, identifying a flow sheet and saying, okay, have I truly hit all three planes of motion if it's indicated for this patient based on tissue healing purposes, surgical precautions, et cetera, right? But let's take that out of the equation for a minute. Oftentimes when, uh, you know, I, I have Andrew in the back of my head saying, hey, Dan, check out your flow sheet and, and make sure that you're getting all three planes of motion in. Most of the time I'm missing something. 
And so then when I'm missing that plane, that's an opportunity for me to really go in and, and do some true neuromuscular facilitation and, and re-education on that new plane of exercise, whether it's facilitating thoracic spine uh, ro- rotation or side bend, which are often missed um, if, we, if we stay with the shoulder patient, um, and or getting that core engaged through some sort of mass flexion. Um, you know, via PNF, getting that scapula and that um, contralateral and or ipsilateral pelvis involved, um, which is then going to facilitate core involvement. And if we really think, go back to even deeper principle, principles of PNF, getting that irradiation, um, you're probably sitting there going, oh man, how'd he pull this out of his back pocket? But uh, I think it's pretty valuable that irradiation principle that where you can, you know, get somebody's foot turned on and it, it correlates, translates all the way up into their shoulder. Um, so really taking that flow sheet and evaluating that flow sheet to say, what do I have covered? What do I have covered well? And where am I lacking? And when you start to facilitate and, and look at where you're lacking and taking that into your patient immediately in my thought process, that's a neuromuscular facilitation purpose exercise, because I'm going to have to be out there with my patient, giving them specific cues on driving their sternum to avoid compensation through their shoulder girdle, um, to avoid compensation through that scapulothoracic region. So that's kind of my approach, um, which I think is highly reflective as well as highly beneficial. It's also that thing that when you start to feel like you've stagnated with the patient and you've made some good progress, but then all of a sudden you're like, gosh, it seems like for the last two or three sessions, we've been at that same 85% and they haven't really made that next jump. That's when it's really crucial to evaluate your flow sheet and say, okay, maybe I don't need to spend as much time with my hands. I need to get out on the floor and, and really watch their movement patterns to make sure that they have that proximal firing and are getting that appropriate rhythm through that shoulder girdle. I, I like one thing you mentioned too, and I think it's a good thing to remind people, at least tell you something I've seen. Look at my flow sheets every now and then. Notice there is a plane of motion that's missing. What I'll do first though, before I just throw that plane of motion into the exercises, I like to take a look at the patient and isolate that motion out. Isolate, again, let's just say I'm missing a frontal plane motion in the low back with the exercises. Make them move in the frontal plane. And you might be surprised where you start seeing some objective deficits that might be that last 15% that Dan was just talking about. Then add the frontal plane into things more appropriately. Go back and look at it again after that session or another session and you will probably see an improvement. Then look at them functionally and you will see it translate. It surprises me how often I have seen that happen when I do feel like, all right, I'm getting a little stagnant the last two or three sessions. What, what's, what am I missing? And sometimes it's that simple as far as what needs to be addressed with individuals. Right. I think if we, if we talk about that, when some of our pet peeves are when we go and we see somebody else's patient or we're doing a chart review and you look at the flow sheet and they're there for 10 visits and you see the same thing on day one as they did on day 10 and you're like, wait a minute, how could they not done this with an independent home exercise program? The only thing that has progressed is maybe a few sets and reps, not even necessarily an external load. Um, so, you know, I think that that reflection and that self-reflection every so often, as well as first testing to see if they have the ability to move in that plane. And if there is indeed a deficit, um, is, is really, is really a key point for our listeners to take there. So you're pretty much saying that progression doesn't particularly mean more sets, more reps or more weight, or even a different verticality, but progression might be looking at the full body and addressing everything that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. 
I like it. I mean, I mean, I think that that's where oftentimes we get pigeonholed, and we some we we've done it to ourselves as a profession where we say, "Oh, well, this person's coming in for shoulder pathology," and I'm worried about a third party auditor saying, "Oh, well, how how can that left hip impact the right shoulder?" And they don't see it because they perhaps that third party auditor hasn't treated patients in a period of time, um, or isn't up with current evidence-based practice or or, or evidence-informed practice um, or yeah maybe not ever treated a patient and their sole job is to say no that's not possible where we need to do a better job of, of regional interdependence and making that connection um, and when we start to make that connection and we see a functional improvement and we've tied it to an objective goal hopefully tied to function uh, I think that that's going to make our job way easier um, as well as way more enjoyable Uh, question for you, when you're evaluating that patient, you know, that's 85% better, what's the change in your thought process related to hands-on versus movement dysfunction? Um, (laughs) that's kind of a tough question. That is, it's a good (laughs) question though. I like that. I, I think it's evolved over time. So initially I thought it was one of those things where I needed to find the last piece that was missing with my hands and address it manually and clean up that last five, 10, 15%. Um, I think over time I have found that it is definitely a combination of the two. I feel like I'm taking the cop out answer here, but it's just quite honestly what it is. I'm a little bit of a heavy manual therapist. I do a lot with that in treatment. So I tend to find that I like to find with my hands where I feel deficit and address it. But if I am not making sure that I'm, again, retraining that motion or prescribing the appropriate exercise progression, as we've discussed, it doesn't tend to maintain or stay. So it quite honestly has been times where I look back and that last 10 to 15 percent from something I've already addressed. I just haven't solidified it within the movement pattern. But often I tend to find that it's something where I said, okay, I'm missing that last little you know, clean up here, that anterior uh, movement at the AC joint and the range flexion, that whatever that motion is that they're lacking for them, and then retrain it. So it becomes a little bit of both, but there are definitely patients where it might be, oh man, I'm just, I'm missing one general capsular movement, or it might be that one that says, you know what, I already, I got the motion going three sessions ago, I just didn't address the appropriate exercises to train it. I find that deficit in my flow sheet, go back. But the majority of the time, it, it's one little thing that needs both of the pieces that is missing. Right. And, you know, I, you know, to answer my question, I'm going to go off of that and say, you know, a lot of times it's <clears throat> we've cleaned up the mechanics from a manual standpoint. But, you know, I get lazy as well. And then I have Greg Johnson in the back of my head saying, did you do your neuromuscular education before you, you know, changed body positions or got them up doing a different exercise? And sometimes the answer to that is, is no. And so it's going back and doing a simple, you know, combination of isotonics, contract, relax, PNF principle to get that system re-engaged before they go and move. And it may mean that I only need to spend quote unquote, five to 10 minutes of hands-on time, which may not be manual therapy. It may be all neuromuscular education and then taking them out onto the floor and doing their, their movement patterns, which again, like you said, the flow sheet may have everything that we need. We just haven't put it together appropriately enough yet, or haven't done enough pre-training before we train them to allow that appropriate proximal to distal myo- muscle f- functioning. And don't forget that whole the body is extremely specific thing. It does not just apply to muscle firing. 
It also applies to what is their functional task? It goes back to that eval day of what's the patient goals? What is their actual aggravating factors? What are the actual functional activities they have a problem with? Well, if we've trained the body and we have the mechanics locked down like Dan says and everything's going where, is it as simple as the, you just haven't translated it to that activity appropriately? You have too many things that are simple standing on, you know, playing ground and having dynamic motions of upper extremity, lower extremity trunk, etc. but we don't have the patient moving in general or we don't have them going through steps or walking or running or jogging, whatever the activity is for them. Don't forget that the activity goal can be it. Maybe they've trained themselves into one specific activity, but it doesn't translate to everything that they need. And that might be a deficit for you that you might uncover with questions, might uncover with that photo episode where you look and say, oh, that, that's weird. Why do you have issues with that? You shouldn't have issues with that still. And you go back, talk to the patient. And they, they have issues with it. They didn't just misunderstand the question. And you say, okay, well, let's work on that. Let's train that specifically. I do want to ask you one last question, Dan, before we wrap up. Um, talked a lot about you, know, you doing things, retraining, you watching, you facilitating. Is this something we can train our technicians to do? Now, obviously not the hands-on component, but where do they fall within the spectrum of neuromuscular education exercise prescription? Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to um, what we've done to train them, like you just said. Uh, for uh, Let's take Medicare out of the equation again. Yes, right? thank you. Definitely. Um, but in, in most states, it's here in Arizona, um, technicians are allowed. We are allowed to bill for their time for neuromuscular education and therapeutic exercise. So depending on what I've done to train my technician or give it him or her specific cueing to work with this patient, um, or my student that is perfectly allowable. Uh, again, you just need to make sure that you're clear and concise on who did what services. Um, so that that is, uh, that's indicated. Um, obviously you're overseeing that with our licensure, but yes, it is allowable for technicians in the state of Arizona to bill for therapeutic exercise and neuromuscular reeducation. Again, pr- assuming that we as the supervising therapist have done our job to fully educate and train them on what the purpose of that exercise is and what we need them to do specifically with the patient um, to achieve the end result. And Dan, you hit on exactly what I wanted to hear. Just as simple as don't forget to train your technicians for these types of purposes so they understand. Yes, I think if I went around the company Every technician would tell me that with shoulder flexion, you should not have some sort of excessive upper trap elevation happening. Yeah, we all, they all get that. But do they understand some of the other things you might be looking for? You have that patient that comes in that isn't recruiting things proximally, and you can use them as a second set of eyes. We have very skilled technicians, most of them going on to some sort of professional school or degree, and have oftentimes been with you for a long period. Utilize their skills and knowledge, train them for it. One, they'll be better for it, and two, your patient care will be better for it as well. So do not neglect that piece of the picture because it can really really help you yeah well thanks paul i think this is a great discussion um you know follows up on some of the things that we've done previously in therapist in motion podcast series with you know a little bit of structure function a little bit of stability mobility a little bit of cpt code utilization a little bit of outcomes um so we've weaved some things in there that are you know trying to connect the dots here for our listeners um, don't forget to, if you have any questions, concerns, or ideas for future podcasts to contact us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Um, stay tuned. we got some more exciting things coming out. 